Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that explores a full-spectrum spirituality. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very happy to have you here with me today. This episode is a part of a workshop I recently gave on yin meditation. And yin meditation is a formulation of meditation that I developed a few years ago, or started to develop, I should say, because it's a work in progress. But it's a style of meditation I developed that really, uh, at first level, has the intention of mitigating and reducing all the unnecessary tensions, struggles, frustrations that I've heard from my students over the years about how they get into trouble with with their the, their meditation experience or the instructions. So yin meditation is really in some ways what I would describe as the advice I would give myself if I had been able to give myself advice when I started the path. Um, I, as I, as I say, I'm, I'm fond of quoting, I think it's the Niels Bohr quote, where he says, an expert is someone who has made all the relevant mistakes that can be made in a very narrow field. And in the 20, actually it's really more, more like 30 years now, because I started in high school. But in the 30 years that I've been practicing, I can say I've made a significant number of mistakes. And uh, this, this style of meditation as a, as a way of starting is intended to, to, to reduce the, the, the tendency to fall into those potholes. Now, um, I, I no longer see yin meditation as just the, the only practice. I combine it with what I'm referring to as yang meditation, and then I develop both of those kind of complementary approaches to, into a, a form of vipassana that has yang and yin elements. So I refer to yang vipassana, which is more like the Burmese style of vipassana, and yin vipassana, which is more like the Thai style form of vipassana. But all together, I think using yin and yang and and other Taoist terms, we can um, really develop a creative and improvisational um, relationship to ourselves and to our experiences in meditation. And so... This, this, this workshop that you're about to listen to, the first half of the workshop that I'm releasing here, um, gives the foundational theory, philosophy, and fundamental principles of this practice. So I hope this reflection and outline of, of practice points is helpful to you. Um, before we begin, though, or before I give you the workshop, I just want to say, uh, if you're here for the first time or you're you're new to the podcast, I just want to warmly welcome you. I hope you enjoy. I hope you uh, are able to take some of the things I share and apply them to your own practice, and I hope that bears good fruit. Um, if you've been coming regularly, if you're a regular listener to the show, thank you. We love regular listeners. All I will ask you guys is, if you're able, and only if you're able, But if you're able, please consider helping out support the show. In the show notes, there's a list of very simple ways you could do that. You can take a class with me and Terry. You can buy a book, the book on meditation that Michael Brooks and I wrote called The Buddhist Playbook. You can uh, purchase some of our continuing ed courses in yin yoga and traditional Chinese medicine and yang yoga and meditation. And if you get hip to what we're doing and really want to continue to practice with us in a regular supportive way and have a sort of an online sangha support to your own journey, you can consider becoming a member. And, and memberships start at $25 a month. So I appreciate you considering any of those ways of supporting us. And um, and I should always add, if you're unable to offer any kind of monetary support, we totally understand. 
a great non-monetary way to support the show is just simply share an episode or pass along an episode to your network, and uh, that is that goes a huge way to supporting the work here. So thanks in advance for your help. Okay, without further ado, I now bring you Yin Meditation, the Rhythmic Pulse of Consciousness. To start, um, I'm calling this the, the Yin Meditation Workshop Principles and Practice. And, and, and Yin Meditation is an approach to meditation that I started to formulate a few years ago. Um, and the, I would say the primary intention of this formulation or this, this sort of d- description of a, a meditation practice was primarily to reduce what I kept seeing as the unnecessary suffering in people that were practicing meditation. And, um, and very early on in my practice life, um, for about four years after I'd been doing retreats, I started teaching or offering a meditation class slash sitting at a, at a yoga studio in Boston. Um, some of you were actually present at those sessions. Um, but I, I started to hear very early on that people were, were creating unnecessary conflict in the practice for themselves. And, and no matter how much I tried to uh, reiterate the instructions that I had received, um, no matter how much I tried to, to sort of try to reframe the approach, the, the, the same issues kept, kept coming up again and again and again. And, and so I've been trying to really rethink the, the whole uh, formulation of meditation. Um, and what you're about to hear from me um, is, is, is the introductory um, level or the introductory approach to that reformulation. Now, calling it a reformulation uh, demands that I say that this doesn't mean that this approach is at odds with any other spiritual approach or, or uh, practice you've you've uh, experienced or, or come across. My hope is that you'll uh, start to see that that this approach can be used within other traditional practices or other traditional techniques that you've uh, experienced. But that maybe this approach can start can can function a little bit like an antidote in your practice to reduce what I would call the unnecessary suffering. Um, so I know some of you have been practicing for a long time. I know many of you, some of you may have even been practicing longer than me. Um, but one of the things that I'll be drawing on in, in terms of how I offer this formulation is I'll be drawing on the the teaching philosophy or the pedagogy, the teaching philosophy of jazz. Um, jazz was a was really my first entry point into spirituality. When I was uh, in high school, uh, I got exposed to many of the, the the jazz greats through records and and compact discs, and uh, they awoke something in me that I had never encountered before. There was a lot, and there was a liveness, a depth of communication and, and transcendence that I didn't have words for. I still don't really have words for, but it blew my mind. And I wanted to emulate it myself. And so I had jazz teachers um, and they were great. I think I had some of the best jazz teachers any high school kid could hope for. Um, but I didn't necessarily hear everything they said. And in fact, hearing was my problem. 
I had a, I was told I didn't have a good ear. I was told I had a bad musical ear and I would have to sort of compensate for my bad musical ear in a variety of different ways. So when I trained in jazz, my teachers, through their help, I would practice technique. I would practice melodic expression. I would practice sight reading so I could read music in big band. Um, I would try to copy solos to the best of my ability. And whenever I would compete, because there was, you know, in high school, there's always those, those like district competitions and all state competitions. Whenever I compete, I get kind of my report card back on what kind of player I was. And the, 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 the evaluations kind of ticked off the various qualities or, or, or capacities I just described. How well could I read the music? How well, how good was my tone or my sound? How melodic was I? How in tune was I? And on the first three, I got always off the chart, hot, really high, superb, superb, superb. When it came into tune, how tune in tune I was, the feedback was consistently needs work. <laughs> and I got to the point that and I tried to go to Berkeley College of Music for a year to really explore jazz more deeply. But I got to the point in my progression that my handicap or my, my inability to hear clearly hobbled my, my ability to play. And it just, I just couldn't continue to play in, in groups that were performing because my skills at improvising, which is predicated on the ability to hear things, my skills were just too low to be able to function at the same level that my peers were starting to function at. So I lost touch with, with music to some degree. And as if you've been in the Sangha, you know that I've been talking about how one of the things I've been doing over the pandemic is picking up uh, training systems that strengthen the ability to hear clearly. And they're called ear training pro protocols. Um, and, and in doing working with this, I've been seeing how my, my own uh, ability to hear is, is improving and, and the landscape of jazz is speaking to me in a level that it never did through, throughout my entire life. So I'll say I'm going to be using the, the jazz pedagogical, uh, um, some ideas from jazz pedagogy throughout this workshop, because I think, at least for me, I, I have found that applying them to meditation, like the, the, some of the, the, the core principles of, of learning jazz, applying those to meditation, I found my practice has become much lighter, much more fluid, much more pleasant, much more engaging and fun. And and, and has aligned me, I think, with some of the core teachings that I've heard in my Dharma training, the, the core teachings of understanding the nature of suffering, understanding the nature of self, understanding the nature of liberation, understand, understanding the nature of, of interdependence or connection. So in this workshop, what I'll be doing is just like I had to go back and 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 strengthen the deficiency in my musical repertoire, namely my ear, my capacity to hear, and I would add to add to that, to feel and, and understand rhythmic patterning, those two things, ear training and rhythmic understanding. Those are the two core capacities that I need to develop as a musician. In the same way, I'm going to try to offer you in meditative practice what I see as some of the core 
fundamental skills that get developed in the course of meditative life. And just like I went, I tried to uh, go do a go around of my ear training with other techniques. I think a lot of people in meditation without being conscious of it, do a go do a kind of an end run around these core principles of the practice in service of trying to get good at a meditation technique. So this will be a, a kind of a, a technique of sorts that I offer or an approach, but really it's meant to be a loose approach to connect you with your experience and your understanding of both, I'd say the rhythmic landscape of your being. And that's what we'll be focusing on in this workshop, what, the, what I'm going to define as the rhythmic landscape of your being. And then in subsequent workshops, we'll start to look into the harmonic landscape of your being, which is kind of the mood and tone of your, of your being, your mind and your heart and your emotions. And then finally moving into the melodic landscape of your being, which I will kind of associate with the, 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 key, the songs we sing to ourselves in the key of me through thought, to quote uh, the mindfulness teacher, George Mumford. He says, we're always thinking to ourselves, we're always singing to ourselves in the key of me. <clears throat> so let me see where I am in my notes. Yeah, so I'd say yin meditation, the way I'm, I'm trying to formulate it, it begins and covers, begins with and covers an appreciation of the groove of your experience, the primary rhythm of your experience. Um, and to help you understand that better, I'm going to give a bit of a short reflection sort of a mini Dharma talk. And from that reflection, I'll then move into um, a, sort of a description of the instructions that I suggest people start with. Just a, just a simple uh, overview of the instructions. And from there, we'll have a meditation. I'll just have a sit quietly and practice the, the suggestions I gave for about 15 minutes. After which there'll be a short, um, what we call a, 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 an active rest. I mean, it will be a break. We'll have a 10 minute break from being online together. But rather than just say, do whatever you're going to do, I'm going to give you some prompts to, to explore what you recall and remember in your meditation. And then when we come back, I'll, I want to talk about it a little bit and see where our conversation goes and see if you have questions or points to share or points to clarify. And then hopefully, I think we'll have another chance to have another sitting together another, and then another uh, check-in discussion around that. So there's going to be a little bit of input from me, some time to practice and put it into experience, and then some reflection on that experience together collectively. And then we'll move into that, the, the, the practice, the, a teaching or input and, 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 and meditation and, and sharing again. <clears throat> so I've hinted, hinted at this a little bit already, but one of the, uh, the big stumbling blocks I think that people have that I've listened to one of the big stumbling blocks is people have kind of a, a, a limited or a narrow definition of what meditation is. And they think that meditation means sitting down to do a technique to produce a result, usually. And often that takes the form of uh, you come down to your cushion or you come to a chair and you focus on a mantra, like a repetitive syllable, or you focus on your breath, or you focus on your body, or you use a phrase that you repeat a few times to yourself, but you do something to produce a particular outcome, whether it's to get calm, to quiet the mind, to feel peaceful, to feel loving. There's some sort of outcome that's expected based on the technique. And 
I think all of that is true. So I'm not negating that. All, everything I just said is true. It's just that if we focus exclusively on that narrow set of techniques and, and specific desirable outcomes, we sort of cut ourselves off from the rest of the experiences that are going on. And we may miss out on the bigger picture of what I think and what many of the teachers I've had share of what's going on in the meditative process and where the meditative process is leading. So in the big end of the meditative journey, there is an experience or multiple ongoing experiences of something called awakening, where the person you take yourselves to be starts to feel more and more like a temporary hallucination or a daydream. And you wake up out of that identity of the person you start taking yourself, you start the path with this person you take yourself to be, you wake up to a dimension of being that is described throughout all the mystical traditions of the world. But all of the traditions, when they're honest about it, say whatever we wake up to, whatever we wake up to and from our normal self, whatever that is, it can't be described conceptually, it can't be described linguistically, like with language. I can't write it out. I can't speak it out. All I can do, all the teaching can do, all the, all the various systems can do is function, as they say in Zen, as the proverbial finger pointing to the experience. So everything I say, everything any teacher says is, is simply just that. It's, it's a helpful tool to point us into this dimension of ourselves so that we all, myself and yourselves included, can, can start to experience what's being pointed to. Now, some systems point to that and they describe the ultimate goal of awakening is an experience of unity consciousness. That's one characterization of it, that there's this, an experience of non-separateness from the world we're in, a sense of interdependence or interconnection or unity where there are no others anymore. There is just the big capital S self of being. Others, other traditions describe that, that, that outcome or that um, the, 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 what gets developed in a meditative process as an experience of unconditional love and compassion. It's sort of phrased more in, in terms of heart qualities where you feel a, a kind of universal, uh, a non-partial, or impartial love and compassion for all existence. By the way, I'm very much still working on this myself. So this is, <laughs> don't think I'm speaking as the, as the, as the holy sanctified guru here who um, is living from that dimension consistently. I think I've had glimpses of all of this and which I feel provides me enough confidence to try to begin sharing and pointing at the, at what I've glimpsed. But the practice and, and the ongoing journey of awakening is to first glimpse these dimensions of being and then gradually over time stabilize more and more and more into the truth of those glimpses, into an ongoing sustainable experience with those, with those glimpses. And so other systems will describe the, and this is what Buddhism tends to describe it as, um, but other systems will describe the, the journey of the meditative path as one of of moving from suffering, of experiencing the, the kind of the lacerating pain of existence, 
to an experience of freedom and liberation from suffering. So those are some of the, the main surface ways of describing the heart of this journey. What I think they all share, what I think all of those descriptions share, and I, and I think all wisdom traditions that speak to these dimensions of awakening, they all share is that when we're practicing, there is no special state or experience to have. And if you've ever practiced what the tradition that I've done a lot of work in, which is called the Theravada Vipassana tradition, there's a common phrase that every experience is grist for the mill of wisdom. So any experience is, if we understand the nature of the practice, we understand how to work with our experience, any experience um, functions to help us deepen our understanding of the nature of experience, the nature of suffering, the nature of compassion, and the nature of ourself. So I, I, there's a quote that I, um, from myself that I wrote down the other night in my notebook, but I think it sums it up, this, this, this broad meta perspective of what the journey is about, which is simply that every experience in meditation or outside of meditation, every experience is part of the universal pulse of existence. Every experience is part of the universal pulse of existence that we're learning in our practice. We're learning to creatively and compassionately collaborate and improvise with. We're not subjugating experiences. We're not defenestrating, throwing experiences out the window. We're not trying to pretend things aren't happening. We're just connecting to the truth of what we see in our experience, learning to creatively, compassionately, and wisely collaborate and improvise with the nature of our experience. So this is like, I'm gonna share a jazz story in a second, but this is like a jazz musician. They learn to hear first and they learn to feel rhythm. And then when, they, when they're, they're hearing and their rhythmic sensibility gets strong, they're able to hear a changing landscape of harmony. Every jazz song has a kind of a, a progression of chords, one, usually one or two chords a bar through, through, for a period of time. And those chord progression, the, the progression of the harmonic landscape from say a minor chord to a major chord, to a tension chord, to a resolution chord, that progression is called in jazz, the changes the changes of the harmonic landscape and the kind of the, 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 um, the demand of the jazz artist is how well they're able to hear that changing harmonic landscape and improvise fresh novel ways of engaging with the, that landscape. So it's in, so it, so it speaks to something. So it says something, so it conveys meaning. So back when I was in high school, and I was a very awkward, probably uh, depressed, angry young man, as uh, I know many folks 
go through an awkward time in their life. Um, part of the reason I was I was angry was that um, as I got into high school, I had to make a um, kind of a career decision. <laughs> Meaning, I was a going into my freshman year, I was really into music and my saxophone, and I was really into playing ice hockey as a goaltender, and I loved them both. But schedule wise, just on the the basic uh, issue of time management, it was impossible to do both. I could not do both. And one of the reasons why music uh, appealed to me more was that it, A, it expressed a kind of a, a more directly a spiritual calling that I couldn't even name at the time. Um, and, and there was a lot of opportunities that were opening up through music. But when I quit hockey, I um, unfortunately, as many people I think can, can experience, have experienced in their life in different ways, um, I became vulnerable to getting bullied because uh, I was a goalie and the, the ice hockey team had a wonderful team minus a goaltender. And the, the varsity hockey team was going to make, was, had the chance to win the, the, the state championship. But when I quit, that was like dramatically reduced the probability of the, the team's chances of winning the championship. And the team was not happy with me. And I got, I was never physically assaulted, but I got verbally assaulted for the next three years. So I was a bit of a bitter kid, bitter of an added chip on my shoulder because of that. I feel like the school didn't, the culture in the school didn't appreciate music. So <clears throat> I took um, solace in, in, in the music. I, I, I was, it was a medicine for me. And I was, as I was driving over today, I remembered um, getting on the bus with my saxophone on my shoulder, my backpack and sitting on the bus and having my Walkman. <laughs> for those of you that are old enough to remember Walkman with the headphones you put on. Yep. So I had my Walkman and I had this cassette of a live recording of a Cannonball Adderley concert. Now Cannonball Adderley is one of the great alto saxophonists who, um, really took the, the genius of Charlie Parker, who innovated music with bebop and adapted it and made it his own brilliant expression of jazz. And in this recording, Cannonball, who used to be a school teacher too, his, his real, his, his given name was Julian, but his nickname on the stand was Cannonball. And in this live recording, he would give these, these kind of inimitable introductions to the songs. They're, they're both soulful introductions, but also a lot of comedy and deep wisdom in them. And there was this phrase that this passage that I'm going to share with you now, where he would, in introducing the song, he, he said, you know, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people acting like they're supposed to be hip. And as a result, I'm paraphrasing, as a result, what you see is a lot of people running around acting like they're supposed to be hip. But here's the line, it says, but being hip isn't a state of mind, it's a fact of life. So awakening, if I were to put that statement on the, on the, on the continuum of awakening, awakening isn't a state of mind. It's not a, it's not an experience. It's the fact of life. And what we're learning to do here in the practice of meditation 
is learning to get hip to the facts of life, the truth of life experience. So that brings me to sharing one human's description of the facts of life. This is from the uh, Indian neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran, who if you haven't encountered him on his TED Talks, I encourage you to check it out. By the way, everything that I'm kind of mentioning um, in the workshop today will be we'll put into a digest for you. So, so references to this, this particular author, references to Cannibal Adderley, those will be put into a digest for you. So don't worry about writing things down um, if you're interested in writing things. You'll get, you'll get the gist of this. And you'll also have access to the recording going forward. But this is a, this is a passage I've shared over the years. And sort of putting this passage in context with starting out on the meditative path, again, in terms of feeling the pulse of experience, I think this, this passage um, is speaking to me, at least, with new relevance. So it's a little bit long, but bear with me. Ramachandran says this. He's describing humans, hum, the human species. Humans write, investigate, create, and quest. We splice genes, splice atoms, launch rockets, we peer into the heart of the Big Bang and delve deeply into the digits of pi. Perhaps most remarkably, remarkably of all, we gaze inward. It's the meditation. We gaze inward, piecing together the puzzle of our own unique and marvelous brain. It makes the mind real. How can a three-pound mass of jelly that you can hold in your palm, how can a three-pound mass of jelly that you can hold in your palm imagine angels, contemplate the meaning of infinity, and even question its own place in the cosmos? Especially awe-inspiring is the fact that any single brain, including yours, is made up of atoms that were forged in the hearts of countless far-flung stars billions of years ago. You've heard the phrase, we're all stardust. He's describing this. The atoms that were forged in the hearts of countless far-flung stars billions of years ago. These particles drifted for eons and light years. Big Bang is estimated to have kicked off about 13.8 billion years ago. So these particles drifted for eons and light years until gravity and chance brought them together here and now. This is a description of fact. These atoms now form a conglomerate, your brain, that can not only ponder the very stars that gave it birth, but can also think about its own ability to think and wonder about its own ability to wonder. With the arrival of humans, it has been said, the universe has suddenly become conscious of itself. This, this truly is the greatest mystery of all. The universe becoming conscious of itself. So on one level, 
what I'll be trying to suggest is that meditation is an appreciation of that fact. Waking up, as I'll be describing it, is a process of literally the universe becoming conscious of itself. But we often experience ourselves, the, 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 the process we take ourselves to be, as being something separate from the universe that we're in, separate from the world that we're in. That's another way of just, you know, that, that spiritual t- teachers throughout the ages have described our pain is that we perceive ourselves as separate. And because of that perceived separation, we suffer. We, tr- we protect, we hoard, we try to get away from. So this perception of separation is sort of embedded as one of the root themes of spiritual training. As I recently encountered uh, 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 the late Alan Watts, a teacher from the middle of the last century, has a wonderful phrase. I mean, he was an incredibly articulate teacher and wise, but he said, I did not alight in this universe like a bird arriving upon a branch from some alien limbo. I grew upon that branch like a leaf. In other words, you didn't come into this world, you grew out of this world. Taoism has a a similar phrase. They describe the human as being between heaven and earth, between heaven and earth. And I've only really recently, I think, came, come to appreciate that. I was teaching the, my traditional Chinese medicine module last weekend and was talking about this. And I drew a little picture of a, a person standing between the heaven and earth. And I realized that this is not some cosmic social stratification scheme. Like the, the, the earthly things are below us and humans are above the earth and then the heavenly entities are above us. It's an actual little description of our unity between these polarities. That our existence is intimately intertwined with the energy of the earth through food and fuel, for food and fuel and uh, food and water, and the energy we extract from the air, the heaven. Take one of those away, there is no human. So again, there's nothing to change about your experience in meditation other than a gentle deepening of your creative capacity to witness and compassionately collaborate with the fact of change itself, the changes of existence that you are. As I said earlier, in music pedagogy, in jazz pedagogy, in jazz teaching, which is an oral tradition where you learn by listening and then trying to recreate it in your own being, there's three levels, three primary levels. There's the rhythmic landscape, there's the harmonic landscape, and there's the melodic landscape. In this workshop, I'll just be emphasizing what I consider the primary basic rhythmic landscape of experience. 
And this, this occurs whether we're in meditation or outside of meditation. And then every system of meditation uh, will develop upon one's ability to sort of understand the groove of this pulse of rhythmic landscape of experience. So the primary pulse that I want to suggest, and let me, let me actually contextualize this. In, in the many years, it's been almost 15 years I've been teaching meditation. The two biggest complaints or biggest problems that people have expressed are either their mind is thinking too much and they get lost in thought, or two, they find themselves drifting off into a sleepy state where they're not aware of what's going on. Those two things happen. And so I know some of you are teachers too. You, you've heard those as well. These happen over, these, these questions come up again and again, and they're always seen as, seen as a problem. So I want to reframe it in the context of what I'm calling the pulse of, of the pulse of consciousness. Consciousness has two primary modes. It's either awake, I'll say more about that in a second, or it's asleep. That's the fact of how consciousness functions. And again, it's the consciousness of the universe waking up to itself. Meaning, we tend to, this is the other part, that the reason I think people get into difficulty with this is, they start out assuming, the meditator begins the path assuming that they're in control of the process, that they're shaping the rhythmic landscape, that they're shaping the harmonic landscape, that they're creating the melodic landscape. And to a certain degree, they'll, they will do the melodic piece. They will do, they, once they understand these, they can collaborate and, and, and influence them. But in terms of meditation, in terms of waking up to the facts of experience, the pulse of the primary pulse of consciousness is one of being either on or off. You're awake and online, or you're asleep. And I want to now specify what those two terms mean: awake and asleep. When I say awake, I don't mean you're you know you're not in bed. You're walking around the sidewalk. You're going collecting groceries and all that. Yes, you're quote unquote awake in a certain way, but the way I'm using the term is specifically to be awake awareness, meaning awareness is awake to itself. There's a knowing that you're aware. And when I say asleep, I mean, you're not aware that you're aware. You're not aware of awareness anymore. So that's why you're getting the groceries. You can be totally absorbed in something, but not even aware of really what you're, that awareness is aware of things. You're kind of lost in the, the second universe of your thought world, which is not a problem. That's just a mode that awareness goes into. It, there's the, you could say, um, and my friend and the artist of my podcast cover says, and he's borrowing it from, from the field of uh, neuroscience, but there's the, the, the universe that we're in, the world of our experience. And then in our brain, there's the secondary universe, the second universe of our imagination, the one that we create and the models we create about the world. And that's all uh, created through sensation in the body and feelings and thoughts and emotions. 
So that's the primary groove of the pulse of consciousness. It's either asleep or it's awake. And that's the rhythm. That's the first primary rhythm that I would, I'm going to encourage you. I've said this before, but that's the first primary rhythm to, rhythm to get groovy with. I wasn't born in the fifth. I'm not, I wasn't a hippie child, but, uh, but the idea of getting groovy with that particular rhythmic groove. Consciousness is on. Oh, this is what it's like when I'm awake. Consciousness is asleep. Now, when, you're, when it's asleep and it gets lost in things, you, you, you're, the reason you can't appreciate it yet is because you're, you're not there. As, as Ellen Langer says, the lights are on, but nobody's home because you're not aware that you're in it. You get pulled into it. Not a problem, though. <clears throat> so this may sound like it's too simple. This might sound like this is not deep enough, like the, like the, the specific instruction. But this is if, if there's one thing I could start anyone on the path with is, is to, just to understand and frame the path that we're not trying to prevent the universe from sleeping. Like the universe is allowed to sleep and dream. And the universe is allowed to wake up and be conscious. Both are allowed. Both are like, and they're allowed because that's the fact of experience. I'm not going to argue with that. So then how, and now, now I want to trans, translate that teaching that I just tried to give into a, an approach of meditation that can align you with listening and feeling, listening to and feeling that pulse, that groove. So the first thing, and this, is, this will be similar to what other practices suggest, it's just the language will be slightly different. The first thing is to start with a perch of, of, or a reference point for your attention to start from. So different traditions going to make the case for what kind of objects or experiences you start with. Some say it's the breath. Some say it's the body, like the feeling of the body. Some say it needs to be the mantra. Some say it needs to be a visualization. I'm not hair splitting over what we start with. I want to just zoom out to the meta experience of beginning with a reference point of some sort. And today, I'm going to suggest that that reference point is simply the, the experience of, or the sensation of your hands contacting your lap when you rest. So it, I'm, I'm intentionally trying to pick one that you might not have used before so that you don't uh, sort of onboard your bad habits from the other system into approaching this approach. You can start with more of a beginner's mind. So just feeling your hands resting on your lap not obsessing about what those sensations are or any, just, just feeling the simple contact as a, as a point of reference for your attention to rest upon. And then from there, after we, you feel the perch, the idea in this practice to help you become aware and, and in tune with the groove and pulse of consciousness is to simply be receptive. 
have a, a sense of relaxed receptivity to your experience, not an attempt to control or direct or dominate your experience, but to simply be receptive to the fact of your groove. Now, the next two points are important. The next two aspects of this fourfold approach are important. As we're receptive to our, the truth of our experience, as we experience, not what I'm saying what your truth is, what, what you experience your truth to be, it's likely, it's inevitable, I should say, or it's likely inevitable, <laughs> that in, through the receptivity, you will experience the pain born out of the nightmare of not being awake. And we all have our own histories. We all have our own traumas. We all have our own wounds and fixations. And that is part of the fact of our experience. So when we encounter that material in whatever form or shape it takes, but when we encounter the content of pain, trauma, wound, the two suggestions I have, or the, the, the meta suggestion is to play your edge with it, to play your edge. This is, and this is an outgrowth of what I've appreciated from the way the yin yoga community talks about playing the edge with physical sensation. So the idea, just to, to, to connect that parallel, in yin yoga, the idea is to bring your body to an edge where you feel a tolerable sensation. It's outside your comfort zone. It's not neutral. It's a mildly, it's a mild stretch, a, a mild discomfort. It's a mild achy sensation, but it's a stress that, that at the appropriate dose allows the tissue to, uh, to so the physiological repair system in the tissue to kick in to repair and strengthen and, and, and enhance the, the, the quality of the tissue. And I want to apply the same approach to our hearts, our minds, and our experience of being. That when difficult content comes up, playing your edge involves evaluating first. Do you have the capacity to tolerate it? Is the, is the content at a range that's not overwhelming or destabilizing? But like, for example, let's say I'm meditating and I'm not going to pick an emotional trauma or anything, but let's say I, I sprained my ankle once. And while I'm meditating, my, the foot that was sprained years ago, suddenly it's numb. It's unpleasant or there's an ache in my foot. And I have to determine, is, that, is it tolerable? Does it feel like there's harm being a, a, a cause to it? And if there is, I need to do something. I need to move. I need to change. I need to redirect how, or how I'm, or I'm, I'm approaching what's happening. But if it's tolerable, I want to I stay with it. Because I want to see if I, it's possible to understand what's going on within that experience. So... The first side of playing the edge is to, to really evaluate, is what's coming up tolerable? 
and to cultivate the intention from receptivity to be tolerant. And after our first meditation and the break, I'll, I'll say more about what both the perch receptivity and tolerance all start to mature into. But these are the, 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 the initial intentions really of the practice to be light with a perch, to be receptive, to cultivate receptivity, not as a, as a rule to everything, because again, sometimes things come up that we can't be receptive to them because it, it would be destabilizing or overwhelming or, re, or too triggering. So this is where we, we learn to play our edge. We learn to exercise our own skillful, improvised response to the changes of our experience. And sometimes, you know, there's a chord we don't know how to play over. We have to sit that chord out. We wait till we develop more skill before we can play over that chord. So first see if it's possible to be tolerant, but then if it's not tolerant, if you, if you decide that it's too much, then, then this is where you, the fourth piece of this practice is to exercise choice. So these are no, there are no hard rules here at all. The last one, in some ways, is the most important, that you have, you have freedom to choose. You can choose to stay with something that you're receptive to, whether it's in the, something in the body or a feeling or a thought pattern. You could choose to stay with it, or you can always redirect your attention back to the perch. Redirect your attention back to the perch. But the difference, I say one of the stylistic differences here in this approach to say many of the approaches that I began with is that the other approaches often advocate to come back to the perch slash anchor over and over again. Kind of as a rule, you, you see something, see when you're not on it, you let it go and you come back. And in my experience, that creates a division between what's happening. There's a division between what the mind's actually doing, the fact of what consciousness is doing, and what I think it's supposed to be doing, which is to be on the anchor. But the primary agenda here at this point, at this phase that I'm offering, is simply to be interested and, 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 and learning to listen to the pulse of what consciousness does. When is it, what is it, when is it asleep? When is it lost in its own inner universe? And when is it awake? <clears throat> so in addition to choosing to stay with something, choosing to return to the perch, the third aspect of choice is that you have permission for me to choose to do another practice. So you, I know some of you have probably had many other uh, practices that you've tried or worked with. And in this more, in this looser approach, it's normal for those other practices to come in. And I've heard this from multiple people over the years. I say, you know, I was doing this relaxed approach and then suddenly I found myself spontaneously doing metta practice, loving kindness. I started repeating a phrase or as I spontaneously noticed I started to was focusing on my breath like I did in my other system or I started to visualize the guru or I started to um, repeat a mantra. Great. That's the truth of your experience. It's totally allowed. You know, there's no conflict in this approach to, with that. 
The only difference is we you don't have to do those other systems or techniques as rules. They're tools through which we start to understand our experience more clearly. So, so, and this gets back to the idea of jazz. The, on my website, and this is, I've been saying this for probably as long as I've been teaching, even though I feel like now my understanding of jazz pedagogy as applied to meditation is getting clearer and clearer really in the last couple of years. But from the very beginning, I would I always quote the, the great jazz trumpeter Clark Terry, who says in jazz, the whole process is one of imitating. We imitate the masters. We imitate the roots of the tradition. We assimilate it or integrate it into our being. We make it our own. And then we innovate upon it. And so this is, you know, you're getting some new input from me, but you have, I'm, I'm hoping, or I'm guessing many of you have had input from other folks. So that's part of your heritage and it does, and it can be brought in. You were assimilating it all. And then ultimately your practice is a creative ongoing exploration of how you in your unique life plays and improvises over the changes of your life. The only thing else I'm gonna say at this point is from the perch with receptivity to whatever else comes up beyond the perch to a gentle tolerance to what's coming up and the permission to either stay with it, return to the perch, or apply a different technique or practice. The only thing I'll say above and beyond that is at times, and this is if you've been practicing a little bit more, I'd say at times when you wake up, so when you come out of the dream, when, when consciousness comes out of the dream state, I shouldn't say you, when consciousness comes out of the dream state, what I'd like you to do is just encourage yourself to relax again. So, because often, what times when you wake up and you realize I wasn't present, what what I should have been doing, and you try to go back to your, you kind of like double down on getting back to the perch. And this brings in, this is this is the, this is planting seeds of spiritual frustration, because there's a there's a tendency of the mind to create conflict with what's going on, rather than just to fall into a rhythmic groove with the truth of what's going on. Consciousness is on, consciousness is asleep. So when consciousness wakes up from being asleep, all I want you as the meditator to do is relax. This, this is like the laziest approach I can think of <laughs> to waking up, just based on relaxation. And then as you relax, you're likely at times going to see your mind spontaneously kind of land back on the perch. So the reset starts. So you just come back to the perch, but you're coming back like a, like a, a downy feather that blew up with a, a puff of air. And then when the puff of air faded, it just floats softly back to the table or to the perch of landing. And that way I am hoping if you if you if you really take this 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 approach on, 
the energy in your practice becomes infinitesimally light. And when it's the, the lighter it is, the easier it is to, 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 to flow with the grooves of experience, both the rhythmic, harmonic, and melodic landscapes. So I'll say more after the break, but, but this, these, these simple principles of receptivity, tolerance, permission, and the perch are the seeds that we nourish and align around in the service of becoming more aware and creatively collaborative with the truth of our experience. And that's just, that's what I just gave you is the advice I wish I had had. I didn't write this down, but there's a, quote it often goes around from Niels Bohr I think is it so attributed to the the great Danish physicist who said an expert is someone who's made all the relevant mistakes that can be made in a very narrow field I'm not claiming expertise status but I can say I've made a lot of mistakes on and off the cushion and in learning from those mistakes, this is what I wish I could have told myself or have been told. That waking up, falling asleep, those are the, that's the primary pulse of the universe's consciousness. And we're just learning to feel and be groovy with that pulse. Okay. So I'm going to pause. That was a little bit longer, but I, I wanted to cover all that. And uh, if we don't get into the, the next phase of the talk, um, that's not a problem. But we'll pause there. And what I'd like to do is bring us into a meditation. So wherever you're comfortable, you can sit in a chair. You can sit um, on the floor in a cushion. Uh, you can be in a couch. The posture, the, the main thing about the posture is just to be reasonably upright and relaxed so that when consciousness goes to sleep, your body won't fall over <laughs> and cause like get into, get into a, an accident. So you're, you're reasonably upright and, but relaxed so that you can be receptive to what consciousness does. I'm going to set the timer for about 15 minutes, but I'm not going to say anything during this time. Uh, and that's the, and, and for that, it's, it's because uh, I want you to be able to listen to your own experience and not have me barking in over that. Um, it, it, having done this in jazz where I was, remember trying to play a solo and my teacher would shout, Josh, it's a D major chord. It's a C7 chord. You know, and, and, then, and there I am. Trying, okay, I'm going to hit C. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to jam your, your, what you're playing into what's being yelled at you. That's not how you learn to flow and groove. <laughs> so I think guided meditations are a bit like that. There you are, relaxed and flowing with your experience. And then the teacher says, now focus on, now be aware of, and it's, it's too heavy handed in some ways. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna be silent and we'll sit for about 15 minutes and then we'll um, check in after that. 
And I'll mute myself after I ring the bell so you don't hear any swallows and things like that on your end. But just come and sit quietly. You can close your eyes or softly open your eyes if you like. As you relax, feel the light contact of your hands on your lap as the starting point or perch, the reference point from where we begin. Intone a gentle, relaxed receptivity to your experiences that unfold and change over time. Intone an intention of tolerance and permission to choose. Do you let something go on? Do you return your attention or redirect your attention to the perch? Do you bring in a different practice? for a period of time. And in that pivot moment, when you, when you feel a, awareness or consciousness become awake, when you wake up out of a dream state, when you know you're awake again, just plant the seed right now to relax and do nothing else at that moment. Okay, I hope you found that uh, talk to be stimulating. I hope it, it brings up some good reflection and, and exploration in your own journey. And um, most of all, I'd love to hear from you uh, when, on what you think. I, I feel like I'm, I'm on a, at a cutting edge of my own teaching where I'm uh, breaking out into some new territory for myself, bringing in the pedagogy of jazz to the, the approaches that I've trained in for a while around meditation and spirituality. And I think the hybridization of those two is a very powerful combination. And so far the feedback from folks in the Sangha has been quite positive, but I don't want to be in a bubble here. So if you're not in the Sangha and you're somewhere outside that, 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 that sphere and you have thoughts to share with me on this, please send me an email. Love to hear from you. My email is josh at joshsummers.net. That's josh at joshsummers.net. I take any questions I get and I, and, I, and I try to weave them into future talks. So it's, a, it's, a, it's part of the ongoing conversation I have with, with the audience here through the podcast. Okay, thanks so much for stopping by today. I really appreciate your attention and your practice. And uh, if you are able to support the show, please consider one of the ways we mentioned in the show notes, either taking a class, buying a book, or buying a course, or becoming a member. But either way, I hope you have a wonderful week. And until I see you soon, please stay strong, stay safe, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.